Welcome to Leaside Lives, episode number 12. My guest this time around is Will Downing. Will is a sports commentator and a very familiar voice. You'll recognise his dulcet tones from commentating on a range of sports, from athletics to soccer, powerlifting to swimming. On Irish Sport Network, Air Sport, Satanta in times gone by, Premier Sports, TG Cahar, CRY 104FM, ESPN, Virgin Media, Free Sports TV, to mention a few. Here is part one of our interview. Uh, just to be clear, first of all, Will isn't a lease either. He's uh, from just across the border in a place called Aglish in County Waterford. But um, he's been covering lots of various uh, Cork sporting personalities, Cork sports events, etc. over the years and would have spent uh, time at Community Radio Yall as well. Good morning, Will. How have the last few months been for you in these uh, unprecedented times? Morning, Jordan. Um, it's been weird. I think it's been strange for just about everybody but I mean in my profession as well because as a commentator I'm relying on sport to be happening live sports and for the past 10-11 weeks there just hasn't been any the funny thing is I was actually working at outside of horse racing the last sporting event the last soccer game that was on uh, before the shutdown came in it was it was on that day on that Thursday I was on the way up to Athlone for um, a university soccer final that I actually wasn't even commentating on I was uh, just doing the interviews on it I was supposed to be working on Inter Milan against Tatafe that night the day before it had got postponed because obviously the coronavirus had broken out quite seriously there I'd done Inter's previous game in Europe against Ludogorets of Bulgaria and that was played in an empty stadium which we have all now got used to and which we're at the moment happy to see because it means that we've got sport on but I was doing that game up in Athlone on the train on the way up um, Leo made his announcement that okay everything's being shut down until the end of March as it was at the time and then obviously the announcements knocked it on month by month pretty much Uh, the phone network went down for a few hours I was trying to contact different people not just about the game but the family as well just to see how everything was and got up to that final it I, if I remember, I think it went to extra time or something like that. The sh- the shutdown came in at six o'clock. We were still playing at six o'clock. And we thought, okay, hopefully there's so few people at this that we're not going to have the Gardaí come around at six o'clock and say, right, that's it. Game's over. So we played on until about 6.30 or seven o'clock. The game reached its natural conclusion. Um, it was you know, being done live online. And then obviously the highlights went out on Air Sport and TG Car and a channel up north afterwards. And that was it. I I have the honour of working at, so far, the last official soccer match to be played in Ireland, full stop. Um, hopefully, it's not going to have that status for too much longer. But I'm back working again, which is very nice. Uh, a few of us commentators have actually... I've got nothing to plug, I've nothing to sell. A few of us commentators have started doing a podcast in the last couple of months just to keep active. But thankfully, I'm, I'm back working on football again. It's the Polish League, which is going out in a few different channels. And it means an immense amount of work again. Um, but it is really nice to be back working once more. So, and look, lots of people at the moment still aren't, but I am really grateful and blessed that um, I'm finally getting to do what I enjoy doing again. Absolutely. Glad to hear that, Will. Certainly sport behind closed doors is better than no sport uh, at all. Like These are unprecedented times. I take it you haven't commentated in an empty stadium or an empty arena in, in, down through the years. This is, a, this is going to be a first for you going forward, is it? 
Bad news. Unfortunately, I am very used to it. Um, I've done quite a few games in the past. What, what tends to happen in European football, definitely the likes of the Champions League and the Europa League, is maybe sometimes around the Balkans or Greece or Turkey. There will be bits of crowd trouble. It's still a thing there, not just in soccer, but basketball as well. Um, South American football, I've done a few couple of Libertadores games in the past because I've, I've worked on that for 10 years where, you know, there's been a bit of bother and, and the stadiums ended up being closed. I remember there was a basketball game. I used to come to it on the EuroLeague basketball, the equivalent of the Champions League, more or less, for four or five years for African TV, Fox Sports, and had been Satanta Africa prior to that and then became ESPN. And you'd look at the fixture list and you like you'd only get the games a week or two in advance, but then you'd see, I've got Fenerbahce against Galatasaray. I'm going to really enjoy doing that. Panathinaikos against, you know, one of the other great Istanbul sides, Anadolu. Oh, this is going to be brilliant. You know, it's going to be a full 20,000 stadium, 25,000, because they really love their basketball there. Huge stadiums. Um, For one of the, I work in athletics a lot as well. And I've been in the largest basketball stadium in Europe, which is in Belgrade. They had the European indoors there in 2017, where Phil Healy made her, you know, major international championship debut. And... Something like a capacity of 20,000, but it was being used for the basketball. So Red Star Belgrade, who play their home games there, had to move to their second stadium, which is still about 12,000. And it was played on the Thursday night when there wasn't any athletics on. So myself and James Vale, who I work with on athletics a lot, we just said, well, listen, why don't we ask and try and nip along? And they were playing a German team called Bamberg. And again, the place was absolutely crammed. And this was their second stadium, 12,000. Massive, huge, absolutely rocking. A real, you know, partisan, even though it's Red Star, football atmosphere there. And absolutely great. So when I was getting fixtures like that in the EuroLeague basketball, I was thinking those are the games that you want to do the most. But because of crowd trouble, sometimes you'd hear nothing but, you know, the squeaking shoes on the on the court. And that was it. And that was the only soundtrack. I must have done something like a dozen games like that before the lockdown started to come down in various countries. So I've now done four Polish league games, which have gone out in the UK and in Ireland on free sports and premier sports, who are two of the channels that I work for quite a bit. And supposedly the feedback we've got is that in comparison to some of the other leagues that have come back, like Germany, where they've behaved themselves, apparently there was a lot of swearing in Polish in our games. But I don't speak Polish, so I didn't know about that. So we, we sort of have to give an apology in advance, just in case. But it's been, it's been interesting to do. Sadly, I am used to commentating in empty stadiums. Uh, you mentioned the, the podcast there. You started up your own podcast uh, during lockdown called Football Lockdown. And I came across that uh, over the past couple of days. I've uh, listened to interviews with uh, Yap Stam and the son of Mart Poom. So uh, plenty of Merlin and uh, Panini sticker album memories for me there with the likes of Derby County's Mart Poom and Yap Stam from Manchester United. Football nostalgia galore on that one. Well, it's funny because like where I work, it's the it's still... The Satanta building, the Satanta sports logo is still outside, even though there are no Satanta channels that still broadcast under that name uh, in these islands. And like for years, I first started working there, I would say, as a freelance, probably 2004. I was working for a, a production company that made a program called Sport Monthly, and they started making programs for the new Satanta Ireland channel. Um, and in that building, there's a bewildering number of channels that go not just to Ireland and the UK, but also go to Eastern Europe, go to Asia, 
Africa for very many years. Ironically enough, that's actually shut up and moved to Amsterdam in the past week. They had Satanta Australia, they had Satanta USA, they had Satanta Canada. So they've had channels in that building for pretty much every continent in the world apart from South America. So what that means, and it's not just in English, like there've been, there's been a French language service for 10 years, which sadly shut down last week. Um, there's been a Russian language service, a Ukrainian language service, uh, Georgian, Kazakh, uh, Portuguese for a few months. So it means that you actually get to know a whole load of people who do your job, but who are from different parts of the world and who speak different languages. So it had been an idea that had been suggested by one of the French commentators, uh, Stéphane Jorny, who was a former League of Ireland player, played for Shelburne, Dundalk, in the late 90s, I think he had a spell at Derry City. He was with Newry for a bit as well. Um, he had a reasonably short playing career, maybe six, seven years. Might have played down in Limerick for a little bit as well. Um, he went into the banking trade, you know, met an, uh, a nice Irish lady, got married, had a family. Um, probably retired, I would say, in his late 20s as a footballer, Stefan Johnny, and went into banking. Did that for about 10 years as... Sometimes happens with couples from, you know, different nationalities. They decided to move to France. I think they were barely there a couple of weeks. And then somebody just sent him an email saying, look, they're looking for French language football commentators in Dublin. I think uh, an old football friend of his told him that. Um, what do you think? And he said, well, you know, I've I finished with banking, uh, moved back to France, looking for something new to do. So he, he went back over and... <laughs> Got the job, just like that. Uh, it was the new Satanta Africa channel that was launching around 2010, 2011. So, like, I've known him for that amount of time. He Immediately, within a couple of weeks, everybody had moved back to Dublin again. And, you know, for a while, we actually lived around the corner from each other in swords. So he had an idea about three or four years ago that was knocking around his head that there are so many commentators who are in that building who work on so many different events, so many different big events who've got a different perspective, different background, would there be a possibility of putting a radio show together? No one was even thinking of a podcast or anything like that. Um, now, the thing with that idea is, is it is quite niche, and certainly local radio stations, commercial radio stations wouldn't go for it, but maybe a few of the special interest radio stations in Dublin might, but we never pushed the idea any further or anything like that. And then the lockdown happened. And, you know, we'd keep mentioning every six months, what about a radio show? And I would say, yeah, what about a radio show? Um, but then Dimitri Zulai, who is probably one of the best known, maybe the best loved football commentator in Ukraine, um, did all the big events on the main channels there for very many years. His uh, TV channel went into a little bit of financial trouble, again, around the same time, around 2010, 2011. So then uh, there was a new pan-European, uh, Eastern European channel being opened by Satanta. And he was asked, do you fancy doing a few games for them? And, you know, nine years later, he's still there. He actually probably raised the idea of a podcast maybe back at the end of March or something like that. And I thought, that actually might be a bad idea now that we have nothing to do at the moment. And Mark Rodden, who I've worked with for probably six or seven years, he was based in Paris for a good few years. He's from Dublin, but uh, Donegal family. 
but who was in Paris for probably seven or eight years working for Radio France International, working for Eurosports and a few other different French agencies there, and who moved back to Dublin, but again, works like me in a lot of European football, sort of he would be an automatic candidate to work on something like that also. So the four of us got our heads together. Our first one was going to be recorded, I think, around tea time the first Saturday in April. And we didn't really have much to talk about. We were just going to talk about, well, what's it been like the last few weeks? How should how should it be tackled on a joint basis in, in Europe? How should we get football back? And I'd say probably 30 minutes or an hour before we start recording, it's announced that Mick McCarthy's leaving the Ireland job and Stephen Kenny's coming in a few months early. So then suddenly, well, that's our first topic. That's it. That's the first programme done. Um, and since then, I think we've done about 17 or 18 shows It's what's amazed me about it is the access that you have to various people like various big names who may not necessarily be be big names here, but who are big names in their respective countries. Yapstan was a massive surprise because he'd just been appointed FC Cincinnati boss. I just, you know, sent off an email saying, well, what would be the chances of us getting a few words with him? And like we got a reply within five minutes the press officer with a mysteriously Irish name, by the way. And he said, yeah, look, we're doing a conference call uh, tomorrow morning, 10 a.m. If you want, here are the details. Um, You can ask, you know, as many questions as you like. There were 25 other journalists in on it. But I mean, I had my time with him. We got about three or four minutes and he was very amenable. And that was great. That was a nice surprise. The thing which sort of probably changed the direction of it was um, Demetra had an idea of interviewing players. Like the first few episodes we'd done, it had been the four of us talking about the news of the week. And that's all well and good. But if the news of the week doesn't change and it's the same news every week, then it starts sounding the same uh, the whole time. So he said, well, why don't we try getting a few players? But he has always had an eye for the unusual. Like he's worked on the Premier League, La Liga, league on the Bundesliga for 20 years he's done numerous Champions League finals he's worked on World Cups he's worked in European Championships but he said well you know what there's a Spanish player who's in Korea who played for a few different clubs he's with FC Seoul now why don't we give him a ring and you're thinking well we don't have much of a chance accessing people like that but sure enough he agreed to do it did an interview with him uh, Osmar Abanez is his name. Did, we then did an interview with a guy called Gessatori. Don't worry, I'm starting the interview in a few minutes. We did an interview with a guy called Gessatori, who's uh, a Hungarian goalkeeper. Now, he's 46. He's been playing in the Faroe Islands for the last 10 years or so, and he's, he's recently retired. Retired um, at the start of the season, pretty much. They have a calendar year season like the League of Ireland. And so we interviewed the two of them. Uh, Gessatori... For people with really long memories, he was playing for the Hungarian champions, Salah Egerzeg, against Manchester United in the Champions League around 18, 19 years ago. And he was on the bench. Their goalkeeper got sent off. He came on with about 20 minutes to go. And the first thing he has to do in front of 70,000 at Old Trafford is to try and save a Ruud van Nistelrooy penalty. And he didn't. So, I mean, like, like we did those interviews and we said what we do is we wouldn't put it in the normal program. We'll, we'll just put them together and it'll go out as a separate program and we'll see how it does. But Really, who is going to care about a Spanish footballer in South Korea and a recently retired Hungarian goalkeeper who's out in the Faroes? And as it turned out, a lot more people than we thought. That's That's been the most listened to episode so far. I mean, we're getting about 500 listeners a week. That episode's had about 1,000 on its own already, which is a major shock. But it's been nice getting, 
you're being able to interview different people because I've been concentrating on commentary basically for the last 12 years, TV commentary, uh, with the the only radio work I tend to do these days, the occasional GAA commentary for local radio, which is maybe only two or three a year. I used to do maybe 50 or 60 a year for CRY and for you know C103 for Cork Sports Sunday. I used to do a lot for KCLR um, when they'd uh, a particular sports, long-standing sports editor there who was a friend of mine. Um, and I'd stopped doing interviews. And it's only in the past couple of months that I've started doing interviews again that I realise actually how much I enjoy doing it. Because the only interviews that I really would have done probably over the past 10 years would be when I'm doing the radio work at major athletics championships and at the Olympic Games. I don't tend to do interviews outside of that. And it's sort of, I suppose it's scratched a journalistic itch that I didn't realise I had. But um, it's been very enjoyable doing it. The fact that a few of us are now back commentating on games again and in my case working on something that literally I'm starting from scratch everything about it Polish football the teams like Legia Warsaw and like Poznan we all would have a bit of knowledge on they're quite big they've been successful they've won a lot but um like I've worked on Belgian football let's say for the last seven seasons and I now know that inside out I was lucky enough that it actually again went out in Ireland and in Britain for four years, then sort of the rights drifted a bit. Um, but I've worked on that so much, and I've seen so many great players come through who've ended up playing in England, like, you know, Courtois and De Bruyne and Vossen and Lukaku, and you can go on and on, you know, Wesley, uh, Leonardo Trossard and so on. There's probably about 30 or 40 players who are in England right now in the Premier League who I've dealt with previously in the Belgian League and who are all great players. And it's really enjoyable, high-scoring league. And I know a huge amount about it. So you still do a huge amount of preparation before each game because, you know, 90% of it, if it's a good match, you will never use. But it's it's good to have. Um, and obviously, I've worked on loads of other football, like Champions League, Europa League, which I still do for Virgin, uh, Premier League, which I did for Satanta for 10 or 11 years before the rights moved elsewhere. And now, after three years off, I'm back working on the Premier League again, doing the live games occasionally on Premier Sports, which is really great. Um, but the Polish League, something totally new. Um, so you're literally starting from a foundation level and trying to do a good commentary and get information that you know, two weeks ago, you wouldn't have thought about. And, and now it's basically my last two weeks have been filled up with Polish football. And that is going to be my life until the end of July, because basically there's a huge Polish community in Ireland and in Britain. Uh, it's going out on free sports, which is a terrestrial channel in the UK. Uh, you can still get it on satellite here. And I think there's one or two platforms you can still get it. And it's on Premier Sports, which is obviously a pay sports channel. So like there's sort of two audiences that you're trying to cater for. One being... The Polish people, and I know a lot of them have their own satellite dishes anyway, and they've been watching the football anyway themselves, um, and Polish TV don't seem to mind. They get extra subscriptions. That's fine. So you, you have to get everything right for them, but you're also having to try to explain everything for the new audience, and you're trying to explain, well, this is who this club is, this is who this person is, and so on, in a way that you wouldn't do for the Premier League, because everybody knows the Premier League clubs and the Premier League players and so on. If a new player comes in, you have a couple of weeks of introducing who they are, but then you know who they are, so you don't need to do that again. 
But we're basically having, you know, there are a couple of players like Vasilevsky who won the league with Leicester, uh, Bostichkovsky who won, you know, the German league with Borussia Dortmund. They're very well known. But then you're basically trying to explain who everyone else is. And it's been an interesting couple of weeks. Um, I've had loads of situations like that since I sort of concentrated on TV probably 12, 13 years ago. But it's uh, it's a joy to do. It's really it's really nice to do. It's it's a different beast to doing something like, you know, River Plate against Boca Juniors, which I did for a good few years, or you know, Liverpool against Chelsea, or working on the Premier League. But I think the audience so far are quite happy, and that'll do me. Or to be more important, they're not unhappy. So that's fine. I'll take that. Absolutely. Well, it's a new challenge as well, which keeps things uh, keeps things interesting. Uh, let's go back. I know having listened to one of the episodes on the podcast, you spoke about your commentary influences, uh, the likes of Jimmy McGee and Barry Davies. And while you have your own unique style, I think their influence is evident there as well, somewhat. But growing up, media was very much in the family, was it? It was actually, yeah. Um, I'm quite fortunate, to be honest with you, because like both my parents um, and like I didn't have any brothers or sisters who influenced me, which is, you know, something that's a bit lacking, I suppose, unfortunately. But I mean, both my parents were sport mad, like my dad, uh, Bill, uh, huge Gaelic Games fan. So he instilled a massive enthusiasm into Gaelic Games in me and also in soccer, like he watched match of the day every single Saturday night. And like in the early 80s, when I was first getting aware of football, and particularly from 1985, when I first started watching football specifically myself, um, there was very little football on. I mean, like you had the Saturday night highlights, the only live games you got really were the FA Cup final and Ireland internationals. And we didn't have BBC in our house at the time either. Uh, my mother was a massive general sports fan, like athletics, snooker, the works. So you have to remember as well is that there was very little of any particular sport on. We might get, you know, you'd have the World Athletics Championships, you'd have the European Athletics Championships, you'd have the Olympics. Um, Ortiz showed a few Grand Prix, the likes of Oslo and Zurich like the big events, sometimes you'd see world records and stuff like that, but there was very little of any particular sport on. Cycling, um, like in the early days, we didn't even get the Tour de France live. You might get five-minute highlights every evening that Jimmy McGee voiced from Dublin. But of course, when you're young, you think, wow, he's in France and he's doing the Tour de France. This is brilliant. Obviously, in later years, he did. Um, I'd say when I was nine, a lot of very important things happened. Um, my dad started writing again. I didn't realize he'd done this back in the 70s um, when I was born. But he became a club PRO again, which meant that he would go to matches, report on them, and he'd spend Sunday nights writing everything longhand twice because there were two local newspapers, Dungarvan Observer, Dungarvan Leader. Um, he came up with an idea once of getting carbon paper and writing it out once and then you know, submitting the carbon paper to one of the two papers who would then say, well, you haven't written it out, so we're not printing it. So then he had to write everything longhand twice over again, week by week. Um, and that had a massive influence on me at the age of nine, because how cool is that? Like my dad writes things on a Sunday night in the kitchen table, and then in a couple of days, they're in the local paper. This is fantastic. Um, what also happened to me at the age of nine was the local uh, hurling team. So at the moment, it, uh, has, uh, as it has been for the last 35 years, it's Geraldines who play hurling and football. Um, but back then, they fielded the 
football team as Geraldines and the hurling team as Villastown. So Villastown were in the county hurling final. It was the, probably the junior county hurling final. And the captain, Pat Landers, was pretty much my dad's best friend or one of my dad's best friends. So there was an assignment that we were set by our, our school teacher. I probably would have been in third class at the time, Ronan Kalu. And he said, look, I want you to write, um, write, write about the game. I said, okay, that's fine. So wrote a bit about the game, uh, asked my dad for a few details, went to interview the captain, Pat Landers, wrote a little report up. And obviously, as a nine-year-old, there must have been something about it that wasn't terrible because then I was asked to start writing reports for the local school team. Um, I wasn't much of a footballer. I think like a lot of kids, I really wanted to be a footballer at the age of eight or nine kind of realised pretty quickly that wasn't going to happen. What also happened in uh, in that particular year, which was 1985, is we started getting lots of live football on TV. Um, and it's funny, uh, a couple of weeks ago, this guy called Killian M2, and he puts loads of brilliant archive TV stuff on up on YouTube. And he put up the entirety of the Manchester United-Liverpool FA Cup semi-final from 1985, which is one of the first games I remember watching, that and the drawn game the previous Saturday. And like it was never shown live in the UK because they strictly were doing highlights of the time and a couple of live games here and there and that was it. So like within basically a couple of weeks of each other, you had these live games starting to appear on TV, which I was very interested in. I was noticing for for for, for the first time, it was the same person who was working on every game. Like what a cool job would that be? And then from a ninth birthday, my mother gave me a, a radio cassette recorder, a Sanyo, which I think... Might still be at home, but it was it was working well for about seven or eight years. And then obviously I just wore it out. And I then discovered blank cassette tapes and you could record and you could do what you liked. So on a Saturday afternoon when you know, the, there was this big shutdown of English football in late 85, match of the day, ITV, BBC were shut out. They couldn't show any football for six months. So RTE had seen that Scandinavian TV were still showing live games. Um, which were being produced by ITV, but they just couldn't be shown in England. So RTE decided, well, listen, why don't we start showing these? So, you know, Chelsea, Manchester United, Liverpool, Tottenham, whoever was playing. The first game I remember was Chelsea against Manchester United. I think Chelsea won 2-1 and I missed it because my school were in a big final at the far field, so I didn't get to see it. But, I mean, they, they would show the live games every week. I would get the, I would try not to annoy my parents and got the cassette recorder out and Tried a few commentaries myself at the age of nine, ten. How bad must they have sounded? But um, yeah, that's really what got me interested in commentary, in in broadcasting, in journalism. So what ended up happening was, no, I kept writing the reports on the school games for a good few years, um, and then obviously moved on to secondary school. So that was that job gone. I, I, so I wasn't doing anything for about a year in terms of you know writing about games. And then um, I broke into my local under-14 team. But again, I wasn't really very good and I was fed up of being in the subs bench. So there was one game, I went along with a notebook and I said, right, I'm just going to write a few notes. If I'm not going to come on, I'll write a few notes. And my dad, luckily, was also PRO for the local juvenile side, St. Oliver's. So I just wrote a report up and I said, look, do you reckon that could get printed? And he said, look, I'll include it. Why not? So what ended up happening was then I never played again. Um, I ended up doing the reports for all the under-14 games because that was my age category. Uh, Then moved up to under-16. And then basically, I would say probably two years later, 
you know, he stepped away from the PRO job and I got it. So I did that for about three or four years. So then I was doing the reports on all sort of the underage games and he was doing all the adult games in our area. And it basically went on from there. And Will, what other significant moments happened then along the way, along along the way to you becoming an established sports commentator? So before the days of... Uh, like Virgin Media and Premier Sports and Air, Air Sport and Satanta Sports. When did the break come or what moments paved the way for that break to come? Fortuitous things. I mean, it's the old phrase about the ill wind will sometimes or will always blow you some good. My, I mean, my grandmother was living with us. Um, and I should point out as well, I mean, why am I on a Cork podcast? My mother's from Yall. Um, I'm from just outside Yall. And I've, sp- I've spent a lot of my life in Yall. So, like, that's basically it. So hopefully I qualify. Um, but my, my, my grandmother, who'd lived most of her life in Yall, and, like, people will remember the, the plumbers, the O'Keefe's. Um, sadly, her husband passed away, my granddad. Uh, John O'Keefe passed away in 86. And she came to live with us out in Anglish. And couple of years towards the end of her life, sadly, she started getting dementia, which was horrible. Uh, like we lived with that probably for two years and it is very, very distressing. So like she was rushed to Ardkeen, Waterford Regional Hospital. And, you know, we ended up visiting her there for quite a bit. And I was there one day and I just saw a sign that they were opening up a hospital radio station. And so like I inquired about that, got pointed in a particular direction. There was a small office down a dark corridor, just go to the end. There's there's somebody in that room there who has this idea of a radio station. I think it was one of the hospital porters, a guy called John Walsh. And he had worked in the old days of, you know, if you like, pirate radio prior to 88. Um, there'd, Waterford had been a very, Waterford City had been a very strong area for radio. There'd been three or four radio stations there. Obviously, Cork City was the same with the likes of, of ERI. And so I went into this fella as a 17, 18 year old with squeaky voice saying, hello, mister, are you trying to start a radio station here or, or something like that? And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, I've, I've an idea of starting a, an in-house radio station. And he was very enthusiastic. And I, you know, I must have been talking to him for about half an hour or an hour or something like that, just talking about radio and so on and so forth. And eventually they managed to get it on air. So they put me down to do, listen, you have an interest in sport that's very interesting. Um, the channel started off anyway in September uh, 94. And I didn't have a program on it or anything like that. But, you know, I was making tea and stuff like that. And I'd also started college in Waterford that same month. So, like, that was a commitment in itself. So I can't imagine the amount of hours I was putting in because there was the college work. I was What, what had actually happened was when I'd left um, secondary school, and I had, there's, by the way, another teacher that I have to quote here because he whether he knew it or not got me really really interested in lots of things uh, taught English German and geography and had worked in radio previously in the 80s and had worked in Germany and had been a footballer and was such an interesting person and was a big football fan so would talk about football a lot a guy called PJ Dolan who was from Roscommon I think was living in Clonmel at the time I went to school in Capaquin and St Anne's which is no longer there it's one of these schools that's merged and moved to another town now moved to Lismore so um, what ended up happening was I was in I would say on on the first Friday that they were broadcasting 
And one of the DJs on, who I got on very well with, a chap called Gordon Lacey, said, look, um, why don't you put the headphones on? Let's talk about what sport is on this weekend. So I said, okay, I'll do that. So we were talking about it for about five or ten minutes. And this was on a day when, you know, my family were visiting the hospital anyway. So I, was, I, I just happened to be in the building and I just happened to stick my head in. And he said, look, put the headphones on. Let's chat. So we did. So we we're talking about all sorts of different things that were going on that weekend. And obviously... It impressed the bosses a lot and impressed him and said, look, I want him on every Monday and Friday if possible. So I did that for a year uh, or a year and a half. And then sort of different people left. And at the same time, there was a community radio station being started up in Yule. Again, the plans had been there for about two or three years, rang up and said, right, do you need anybody for sport? And they said, well... We need everyone we can get at the moment. And like I ended up there, I was still going to college in Waterford. So I'd just ring in with little bits. I was appointed the West Waterford sports correspondent, which was as lubrious as it sounds. And I would just ring in from college. Actually, they would ring me. I would stand at a particular public phone in the atrium at Waterford RTC, as it was at the time, at 4.30 on a Monday and on a Friday, hope that nobody else would use the phone and then I just, you know, having rung different people, got different reports, would just deliver my five, ten minute reports, have a chat with the original presenter. It was originally going into um, a current affairs program called Y'all in Focus. There wasn't a dedicated sports program at the time. But then um, a gentleman who, of your acquaintance, Eugene Crotty, ended up being appointed sports editor there. And then they had sports programs going out, I think, on a Monday and a Friday evening. And I continued doing that for years and years. Like I was with CRI for about a year. Then I had the good luck to be shown around Southeast Radio. It, it was a remnant of what I'd done in hospital radio. We'd done sort of reports with all the local radio stations, um, what's happening in your area this weekend. And David Fallon, who was delivering the pieces for Southeast Radio, said, look, why don't you come in one day and have a look around? And sort of that idea had been bouncing around my head actually for probably a year or so. I'd started doing a couple of games in Cork and Waterford for Southeast Radio that they, you know, they didn't have the resources or the ability to send a reporter to do. So I would go and do it for them and it saved them a lot of bother. Um, so the day I was invited in to have a look around was what they thought would be a very quiet Sunday. It was Leinster hurling final day. Wexford were playing, I think it was Offaly. And they thought, well, look, that's going to fill up our day. Wexford hadn't won a Leinster title since 1977. They hadn't won it in 19 years. And they thought, well, look, we've got the live commentary. We've got our usual sports program, hour of sport between six and seven, the sports hour. And that'll be full of the GAA. And then something really unexpected happened. Wexford won. And then all hell broke loose because then... Like, David ended up having to concentrate on that. And he said, look, I, I now don't have time to look after all the other stuff. So having been, you know, brought in to have a look around, he suddenly said, right, can you start getting all the other news that I was going to get? Because I now, I'm now unhurling exclusively. So I gathered everything together, sort of wrote everything up, um, hopefully scripted it as neutrally as possible for someone else to read. And he said, um, oh, no, actually, you're going to have to do this because I've been on for the whole hour. Um, you read it. So then... Having been the guy looking around, I end up the night Wexford win the Leinster title and everybody in the county is listening, which is around 100,000 people. Um, suddenly there's this new voice they're not familiar with who's reading, you know, five minutes of everything else that's happened today. And then obviously they thought, OK, we, we like the sound of this chap and we like what he had to say. So then I was asked back basically every week and then... 
when David left a couple of months later, um, I was given his job. So suddenly I had a full-time job. And this, having uh, finished with uh, college, I tried to get it back in for the third year, but I had to repeat certain exams. And the worst thing was the, the main exams were on a Monday morning. The Monday morning after the All-Ireland final, which Wexford were playing in, which I was working on. So I, I had no chance. So I didn't pass that exam. So I had to come back then the following summer. I was still determined to sort of get my qualification in computing, which obviously I've never used because, I mean, that's it. I've worked in full-time broadcasting since then. I was with Southeast Radio for four years, went back home to Wardford Local Radio for 18 months, and then got picked up by INN, the national... Uh, Radio news agency, worked there for nine years, ended up being sports editor for two years in name and probably five years in total, um, not in name. And like from there, I ended up doing uh, some basketball commentaries for a production agency who then had an idea of doing an old sport program called Sport Monthly that went out on RTE for a couple of years, then went to TG Cahar, was on Satanta as well. Satanta heard me and said, would you be able to do a few commentaries for us? And that was 16 years ago. And somehow I'm still on the telly. I don't know how, but there you are. You obviously got a great grounding so through like hospital radio and community radio and the breaks came and it's really interesting that you had that enthusiasm and flair for it at such a, a young age, Will, and uh, it's taken you the world over now because I know when I used to do the sports show on CROI, anytime I'd ring you up for a for a chat, like there'd be a peculiar dial tone and uh, Will could answer. He could be in uh, Baku, he could be in Tallinn, he could be in Prague, he could be in London, he could be in uh, Aglish. <laughs> Yeah, and the last one is probably the weirdest dial tone of all. I mean, I've been very lucky. INN was a fantastic place because, I mean, sadly, it closed uh, probably about 18 months after I left. I'd been there about nine years, and I sort of felt that they were looking to scale down the sports service there. And I thought it would probably be a good time to go freelance, not knowing what I would end up doing. And then, you know, curiously, after six weeks of doing very, very little. Like, the first week was fantastic because I did two commentaries on Satanta back in the days when there was also Satanta UK. So I did a couple of Satanta Cup games, and the Satanta Cup was, for many years, a brilliant competition. I know it faded away a bit at the end, but it was, it was certainly for the first four or five years, it was absolutely magnificent, and the interest in it was huge. Um, I think I went along to the Champions League quarterfinal or semi-final Arsenal against Liverpool back in the days when you know English clubs were meeting a lot uh went I think to both FA Cup semi-finals and for the next six weeks I think I did pretty much nothing and I was also moving to England at the same time as well because there was a bit of work being lined up for me there I was going out with a very nice English girl at the time as well and so it looked as if my like the direction was going to be lots of radio work in England and then suddenly I got a call out of the blue to do South American football. Would I be interested in doing it? Um, a guy rang from Glasgow called Rory Rigney, who was organising Satanta's European football coverage in Satanta UK. And he said, look, we have the rights for this thing. We're taking the international commentary at the moment, but it's a Brazilian chap who's commentating in a language that's not native to him. And like it doesn't sound right to us. And we've asked around... And Satanta Ireland say, you might be interested in doing this. Uh, we, we're not open during the week. We're only open at weekends, our department. 
So you'd be doing the commentaries from Dublin. The games are on at 2 a.m. Would you be interested in doing it? I said, oh, absolutely. Yes, please. Because I'd actually watched a few of the games and I'd actually seen the other commentator doing it. And like there was no clock or score on it. Um, There were a whole lot of quite obscure clubs. I never knew there was a South American team called Arsenal, for example. Never knew there was a South American team called Everton or Liverpool. I thought that was really interesting. I knew very little about South American football full stop outside of, you know, the really, really big names and outside of the World Cups and stuff like that. So I said, yeah, I fancy a challenge. It was just for six weeks. Um, That was it. And then ended up doing that for 10 years. But in terms of the radio stuff, it was fantastic because, I mean, I've worked on uh, four Olympic Games, did a World Cup in Germany, did the European Championships in Austria and Switzerland, now done eight World Athletics Championships, loads of European Championships, I've done Ryder Cups on both sides of the Atlantic. Probably the biggest thing I haven't worked on is the Rugby World Cup, but I mean, I'm okay with that. Did a good few Heineken Cup finals as well. I mean, lots of commentary. The brilliant thing about INN was that it was going to the network of independent radio stations, which is combined the largest audience in the country, it's about two. It was two point seven million at the time. I'm not sure what it is now. I'm, I'm sort of a little bit out of touch with radio because I don't work in it every day anymore. Um, but it also meant that you would, you know, not just get to go to these events, but you'd also be asked to do commentaries by various stations. So I mean, for years, maybe six or seven years or eight years, I did loads of commentaries for you know, C103 on Cork Sports Sunday. And I'm delighted to see in the latest figures that is now the most listened to radio show in Cork. They deserve it. It's been Largely the same team for maybe, oh, probably since day one. And, the, you know, they're magnificent and they deserve every success they've had. And I obviously used to do a lot for CRY. Um, the GAA rights were a bit different back then. I used to, I mean, I did the first three GAA seasons on News Talk, the first two rugby seasons that they had. I used to do a lot for KCLR in Kilkenny and Carlow, which is the area where I now live. And, I mean, it was really great. Uh, that period in 08, when I sort of stepped away from it and went freelance, you know, I wasn't working on the GAA championship anymore. And I think the first couple of championships, I, I missed quite a bit. I, I ended up commentating then three years for one of the Dublin stations and the Dublin games alongside Declan Drake and Barney Rock and Marty Morris for the hurling and sometimes Humphrey Callagher. And that was really enjoyable to do. But it was only a three-year deal and that was it. I think both sides pretty much lost interest in it after a while, which was a pity. Um, so basically since 2008, I, I, I've sort of ended up doing... Um, you know, lots of football, lots of European football, lots of South American football. and quite, you know, fortunate that Satanta grew and grew, uh, worked for them for 12 years, always freelance. They then became Air Sport in 2016. I still did their last two seasons of Champions League, but they had an amazing amount of rights. They, you know, loads of Premier League. So I used to do maybe seven or eight live games a season and you know, they would send the commentators over to England as well, which only them and French TV did at the time. I think now only uh, French TV and probably US, NBC do now. If you consider all of the countries where the Premier League is shown live, all the languages it's done in, 99% of that commentary is done from studio. I remember when I was working in Turkmenistan for the Asian Games a couple of years ago, I met uh, their main, I was working on the athletics and their main athletics commentator is also their country's main football commentator. And he's done you know, countless World Cups, countless um, Asian Cups, countless Olympic Games. He's never left Turkmenistan. It's it's how a lot of commentary is done these days all over the world. It's, it is a fact of life. Um, but I've had the fortune in sort of falling into a kind of a niche where 
I've probably commentated on 20 different sports, some of them really peculiar. Um, and it's brought me to like the two European games in uh, Kazakhstan and Belarus. I do a lot of para-sport commentary now, which I'm absolutely blessed to, to do. I love working on the Paralympics. I love working on para-athletics and para-powerlifting. And that's brought me to Dubai, to Kazakhstan. I did those Asian games in Turkmenistan. I've commentated in Brazil, Colombia, Chile, Mexico, uh, where there's been a world championships. Um, I, I was also fortunate outside of that in the INN days to do the Lions Rugby Tour in New Zealand, which was on the pitch the most disastrous they've ever had. But it was really incredible. The only time I've been there. When they say travel broadens the mind, they're not lying. It is fantastic to see, you know, the way things are done in so many different countries, not just in sport, not just in broadcasting, but in everyday life. And, you know, to, to parachute in somewhere, let's say, for let's say two or three weeks at a time or for World Cups five or six weeks. And I know you are seeing the countries at their best and deliberately so. And I know that when we've covered events in China or in, you know, parts of Eurasia, you are seeing a version of everyday life that isn't real. And I know we're fortunate that, you know, we're, we're like we're living in hotels. So we're not getting a truly accurate snapshot of what everyday life really is like there. But to be in these places, um, a lot of the time you get really surprised. I mean, I was working at the European Games in Minsk last summer, and I couldn't have told you much about Minsk before that. I would have thought it would have been very Soviet, very grey, very Eastern looking. Whilst it is very Eastern looking, what I've noticed in you know places like Minsk and Belarus and Ashgabat um, and Astana, or Nur Sultan as it is now, is that a lot of them have been largely rebuilt and they are actually quite new. They are historic places, but the waterfront in Minsk is one of the most incredible places I've ever been. And there are these wonderful huge parks. There's a, there's a huge lake. So like where our main base was to the hotel was probably a 30 or a 40 minute walk, let's say last summer, past the lake, beautiful sunshine every day. If you decided to go the other way around the lake, it would take hours because there were lots of roadside bars there. And that happened the first day or two. And the same thing actually happened in Baku when a whole load of us who'd never met before, um, and like I was the only Irish commentator there, we decided why not go and sort of have a look at some of the venues. And then, you know, 10 hours later um, at an open air cafe, we've seen no venues, but at least we've all gotten to know each other quite well. There's sort of a camaraderie when you're working at multi-sport events like that and there's a whole disparate amount of people from all over the world who are your colleagues. And some you, you get to know over time very well. Uh, the atmosphere for stuff like that is something that is, it's like the first day of school or you know, college. It's something that you don't get anywhere else. And it means the camaraderie is actually quite high. And I think the quality of your work is quite high as well. If you have to end up doing something like water polo, like I did in Baku, um, or swimming, which I don't normally work on, or athletics, which um, I'm a big fan of, and thankfully I've uh, managed to work on for a long time. But it's it sent me to a lot of really exotic places around the world. But it's still a joy to work on something like the Cork City Sports every year, or the Junior Tour of Ireland in cycling, which is on in Clare, or the you know cross country up in Antrim and, and Belfast every year. There, you know, the University's Athletics is an event that maybe not very many people go to, but it's something that I get a very good kick out of working on as well, as well as the para sport, which is something you know I fell into completely 
by accident. Satanta got the rights for London 2012 and they said, you do a lot of athletics, so we'd like you to do that for us. And I'd watched, you know, a couple of the previous Paralympics without really understanding very much about it. And there was a former um, champion athlete who was on our panel called Derek Malone, who's lived in South Africa for, for very many years. And I just sat him down and said, right, we've got about 30 minutes. I want you to explain everything to me so that I can relay that. And some way during the conversation, I said, okay, well, this is all very good, but I, I need to understand it and I need the audience to understand it as well. So there are all these different categories, all these different numbers, T42, T11, T54, F40. Okay, what do all of these mean? Uh, and they all have a very long explanation. You know, there's this athlete goes into that category and so on. And I said, right, well, that's all really interesting. But is there a way I can sum each category up in maybe 10 seconds or even better, five seconds? So we sat down, we we got at it, and we came up with a list that I still use today. I commentate a lot for the International Paralympic Committee. I got a phone call the following year um, for the World Parathletics Championships in Lyon. I was due to go away, go away on holidays with my family to Malta. And I got a phone call from somebody working there who used to be with Athletics Ireland. And they said, look, we need a commentator for our Parathletics Championships next week. Do you fancy doing it? And I said, well, I'm going away on holiday. I'll have to ask the family. Um, well, I wouldn't be sure. And then thankfully the family said, well, you know, you never know what you might get out of it. Um, go and do it. But we're still having our holiday, so you're bringing us to Leon. So that's exactly what happened. They had their holiday, I had my work, and you know, seven years on, I'm still working on that. And that's brought me to very many places around the world. And the thing I love about athletics and para-athletics and the football work that I've done reasonably recently is just the access that you get, the people that you talk to, the people you meet, the interesting athletes that you know I, you don't really get in the Premier League. I, I believe you certainly don't get in GAA these days at all. But yeah, I wanted to ask you about that, Will, about access, because I recently read the book. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. Pete Davies all played out for one night in Turin about the Italian 90 campaign. And he has had like um, the access he got that at that World Cup to Bobby Robson and the English squad was incredible. It's something you probably don't get today, especially in in soccer, in Gaelic games, as you say, as well. Yeah, it doesn't happen anymore. The thing which I loved when I was an INN, and I think the timing of me stepping away from radio work into TV commentary is that I don't, you know, do press conferences anymore. Uh, like back when I was working in radio, the access was absolutely fantastic. Like there's one in particular I remember really well. It was around 04, 05. And Athletics Ireland, uh, Liam Hennessy used to look after everything there at the time. He was president, but he also looked after a lot of their press stuff. He was really forward-thinking, great man altogether. He thought it would be a good idea to have a dinner with all of the different athletics correspondents you know, in the country, of which I was one with INN. Uh, athletics was part of my brief there, along with loads of other sports. Uh, and we'd have dinner and talk and interview three really good young up-and-coming athletes. And they turned out to be David Gillick, Derville O'Rourke and Paul Hessian, who all ended up being quite good. So getting to know them from a very young age was fantastic. I mean, obviously, Dave ended up winning two European indoor titles and had a really good shot at the world title in Doha in 2010, which I was going to go to until I got a call to do Chelsea West Ham at Stamford Bridge for Satanta that day. And it was a rare opportunity at the time. So I said, I'd be better off doing that. 
than going to work as a as a freelance in Doha and pay you know which would have meant me paying my way and stuff like that. So it was a small Irish team anyway. He came very close. He was a brilliant athlete. Derville, sensational world indoor champion. Now. I would gladly listen to her talk for three hours. That, that's got to be your next podcast, I'm telling you, Jordan. She's magnificent. As an athlete, she was an absolute killer. And like you think she finished her career with maybe, I think, five major championship medals, maybe six, because I know she got upgraded a couple of years ago. And when you think that there were a couple of fourth places that she got as well, maybe one or two of the athletes who finished ahead of her were somewhat suspicious at the time, and even more so now. Like her and Sonia and probably Katharina McKiernan probably are the most medal Irish athletes we've ever had. Fanula McCormick is not very far off. Obviously, Kieran McGinn, uh, Mark English have won three major championship medals now. But, I mean, Derville's got about five or six. She was fantastic. Um, and Paul Hessian was as well. Now, Paul never won a major championship medal, but he got to so many major finals. There was a nickname that he had for a brief time, uh, the fastest white man in the world, which was, I suppose, a bit of an honour at the time. Um, I'm not sure if it's a nickname that you would have today, to be honest, but uh, he was a fantastic athlete in his own right. He was making major championship finals at Worlds and at Europeans. Um, but, I mean, Derville was a great athlete. But the access that we had to the likes of her, I, I mean, I'll give you an example with Derville. Uh, like she would have heats probably semi-finals and final maybe another preliminary round at the start of that and she would do a pool thing you know Orti would usually be there and they would get probably four or five minutes with her and then the print journalists would get four or five minutes with her and I would always defer to them and then I would you know she she would be talked out at that stage but I would still Derville, can I can I grab you for three or four minutes for radio? And she would do another radio piece, and David Gillick was the same, Paul Hessian. Athletics is really, really very good for that. Um, but she'd be doing that, you know, right through the week. You know, the 100 metres hurdles would be run off over two or three days, and even tighter for the indoor championships. But she always gave her time. It was different in the indoors, because if she went through in the semi-final, then the final would may be maybe 90 minutes later. Uh when I was covering those championships first, the mistake I made was trying to interview her after the semi-final. Doesn't happen. That's it. And by the way, what outlet would that go out on? Because her final's in an hour. There's no point doing an interview at that stage. But she was always under immense pressure, really gracious. And like, I ended up doing something with her a year or two ago. Uh, she was promoting something up in Dublin. I think um, a corporate road race or something like that, or a team relay. I like, blimey, we hadn't seen each other in years. And we're just chatting for ages and then I thought okay we'd better do the interview now by the way I mean she was fantastic I loved dealing with her and I am delighted that both she and David haven't been forgotten because that could very easily happen um and they've had to you know develop a different niche with the cookery with the fitness but look to to, to answer the question you asked me about 15 minutes ago um like, the access was brilliant back then. The access in Gaelic Games was brilliant. You could go down, absolutely no problem after a game, interview a manager. Now I understand at Croke Park, it's 
just top table stuff. You get the manager, that's it. There's very little opportunity of interviewing players and so on. Um, if you've got a local connection, maybe with local radio, you've got a chance. But, you know, the GAA access has gone way down. I know in soccer, it's massively disimproved as well. Uh, like the first four or five years, I wasn't really commentating for Satanta. I was their touchline interviewer. And being TV, the access for that is huge. But I think in the sectors that most of us would have worked down through the years, which is sort of print and radio, and certainly for a lot of TV as well, if you're done right, the access these days must be almost non-existent. I know a good few people who still work on the circuit, and I know they're very, very frustrated from it. Like for... The podcast which I'm doing at the moment, uh, the main TV presenter on Estonian TV, Ayat Suvari, when it didn't look like we were going to get either father or son of the Pooms, um, I just sent, I found her email on you know the their channel's website and said, "Listen, sorry about this. You don't know me, but you know we're trying to get interviews with different people and it's not working out. Do you mind if we got an interview with you about the launch of the Estonian TV? Actually, the Estonian TV season had kicked off, and what made me think of her was that there'd been a video of her." spraying the microphones live on air in in between interviews they hadn't cut away quickly enough so i said well would you like to do an interview and like we've got a response within five minutes and you think if only everybody was like that and you know it wasn't brilliant in my day it wasn't spectacular but we still got to interview fantastic people yeah tell me about some of the other interviews you've done will over the years george foreman joe fraser never got to interview ali sadly Probably wouldn't have been in the condition for it at the time. Uh, George Foreman was promoting his grills about once a year in Dublin. So I got to speak to him, which was absolutely fantastic. One of the best interviews ever, because what you do is, okay, George, this is the first question. Ten minutes later. Thanks for that, George. Here's the second question. Um, when I was working on that Lions tour in New Zealand in 2005, there was... I think there was a launch for New Zealand's bid for the 2011 Rugby World Cup. And it was a supplementary thing. It wasn't connected to the lines at all. On in Auckland, in the Sky Tower, the tallest building in the Southern Hemisphere. And, you know, the thing with that is you're always on. You're always working. Um, From the moment you wake up, you're basically thinking about work. There's not a lot of time for sightseeing or stuff like that. And I kind of thought, well, there's not very many going to it. There's not going to be a news line from a Lions point of view is there really a point in going to this? But the people who'd invited us were the press officers who we dealt with from the New Zealand Rugby Union for the previous few weeks, and they were lovely people. So I thought, okay, look, I'll go along. We'll do a few interviews. We'd gotten to know some of the New Zealand rugby officials there. I think Steve Chu was one of them, who was an absolute gentleman, brilliant guy. So I think he was fronting the bid. So we went along, interviewed him. So that was nice. You know, got a free bag out of it, which is great. And, you know... Went up to the top of the Sky Tower. That was really good. Went back down to where the press conference had been. About to leave. Walking down the corridor. There's an open door. And there's, you know, a tannoy. So there's some sort of event on. I thought, okay, I'll see what this is. Wonder if it's anything to do with rugby. And it turned out it wasn't. But there was a big dinner on. And there was an interview going up on stage. And it was Colonel Bob Sheridan the veteran American boxing commentator, and smoking Joe Fraser. I thought, Joe Fraser, wow. Okay, well, I'm, I'm, whatever plans I had for the rest of the day, I'm staying for this. I'm, so, you know, sat in, um, found out who was organising the thing and said, look, I'm, I'm here working on the rugby, but, you know, what are the chances of us, you know, being able to stay and have a few words with Joe Fraser? And he said, well, you know, he's a bit tired, he's a bit jet-lagged, but look, we'll see what we can do. 
Okay, no problem. So stayed for dinner for about two or three hours, which is always a perk of the job anyway, which was very nice. And then he was doing a bit of a signing session afterwards. So rocked up with uh, a colleague and just said, Hi, how you doing? I'm with Irish Radio. Do you mind if I um, ask you a few questions? And, you know, Joe Fraser being Joe Fraser said, no, shoot, go for it. So he was very tired. Absolutely. There's no doubt about it. But like still spoke to him for about 10 minutes. And again, that's probably one of the best interviews I've ever done. And an interview which, you know, an hour earlier, I never would have thought, you know, I, I would have got. It's funny the people that you bump into at various different events. Like I remember, I think it was Matthew Pinsent was at a rugby launch and I grabbed a couple of words with him. And it was just all from memory. He was just passing me and I said, uh, and obviously he does a lot of work with BBC and he must have been doing a bit of rugby work with him at the time and you know he's obviously a champion rower and you know I still got a five minute interview, or tr- interview out of him trying to get as much impromptu rowing knowledge out of my head as possible I'd somehow managed to remember that he'd replaced Andy Holmes as Steve uh, Redgrave's main rowing partner which I don't know where that came out of all those nights watching a question of sport as a kid obviously helped but I mean, like the amount of people, Usain Bolt, again, uh, got a few words with him after his unbelievable week in 2009, because um, athletics is one of my main sports and it's a, a sport that I've always loved as a kid. I think it was all, it was the flags, the fact there were so many nations competing at once, not even the thought that we'd really good Irish athletes at the time, obviously Eamon Coughlin and John Tracy, and John Tracy's just from two miles down the road from me, and obviously that silver medal in the 84 Olympics was very inspirational for anybody from that area. But, like, athletics caught my eye when I was very young. And it just turned out that Usain Bolt was doing a launch for the Jamaican Tourist Board on the last day of those World Championships in 09, And he'd broken three world records by that stage. And his work was done. He was comfortable. He'd done all his interviews that week and so on. So, Shelly Ann Fraser-Price was there as well. Got an interview with her and no bother at all. Um, and that was great. Uh, obviously, the female Bolt, if you like. Multi-gold medalist across worlds and Olympic Games. So then... You know, there was a thought that Bolt might show up, might not show up, but there were a good few athletics journalists there. And then suddenly he shows up and he says, right, glad to be here for Jamaica Tourism. Does anyone want to ask me any questions? So then, okay, I've got my recorder. And there's there's a photo of me somewhere. That, like, suddenly there was such a mass of bodies around him. So I, I got three or four questions out and got three or four reasonably good answers. And from a radio point of view, that's it. That's your piece. That's your interview. That's about three minutes. Bingo. I've got three minutes with Usain Bolt. So he was talking for about 10 or 15 minutes and I've got what I need. And like, there's so many people massing around and everybody's stretching quite to the last sinew, trying to get the mic as close as possible. So there's a photo of me somewhere, which I've never seen, of me standing in front of Usain Bolt along with 30 or 40 others holding a mic for Norwegian television, for NRK, because they were right at the back. Their mic was only over my shoulder and I was still about, I don't know, maybe six or seven feet from Bolt. I said, look, I'll do that for you. So that was my five minutes doing a bit of work for Norwegian TV. But it's what I love about athletics. There is an atmosphere and there is an access. And in parasport as well, there is an uh, an appreciation, I think, from the athletes of what you're doing. So behind me, actually, and I think they're right here, when I was working at the World Championships in Dubai, alongside one of my long-standing colleagues, Tulsan Tollett, who I never thought I'd end up working regularly with as an athletics commentator, but he's, he's absolutely brilliant at it. Don't tell him I said that. We got this from the Dutch delegation. They're little clogs. 
and they really appreciated the commentary work we do. When we hear back from athletes, when they're not complaining, um, it's really nice to hear back that they appreciate it. And, you know, with the Belgian football that I've worked on for years, it's nice to hear from people that they actually enjoy the Belgian football and that they enjoy the South American football and in the current case with Polish football that, you know, <laughs> there is a lot of effort in trying to get it right. And as Barry Davis quite often said, if you can open your mouth and try not to put your foot in it, then then you've done okay and that's all you can ask for. And I'm not going to say anything else and tempt fate, but uh, the sports I've worked on so far, I'm really appreciative of. And I mean, you think as well in para-athletics, like that London 2012, well, you know, it, it opened up an entirely different career for me because like we did the para-athletics, Jason Smith won his two goals, Michael McKillop won his two goals, which was absolutely fantastic. So Satanta showed the entire... Uh, Paralympics live, RTE showed nightly highlights of about 30 minutes. So it was our commentaries that people were, you know, listening to and, and reacting to, which I was, you know, proud of, I guess, really. And then when the next Paralympics come along, I was working on the world feed, which was going out everywhere. And Air Sport, which had replaced Satanta, were taking the world feed. So I was still going out on the same channel doing the athletics. But RTE were actually picking up a bit of it as well, which was a bit of a surprise. A nice surprise, really. I popped up on with them, you know, a couple of times. Did the Olympic volleyball for them at no notice in 2016, which was nice to do. 